Welcome to another episode of Podcast BC, a podcast for sharing the stories of the product community around Vancouver and the rest of British Columbia, Canada. My name is Blake Fisher. Today's topic is a big one as we slowly start to come out of our year of living through a pandemic, mental health. Specifically, what sort of mental health advice can we offer to those working in product or tech? In any given year, one in five people in Canada will experience a mental health problem or illness. By age 40, about 50% of the population will have or have had a mental illness. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Neufeld, co-founder and registered clinical counselor at Alongside You, a Ladner-based integrated health agency. Together, we talk through a lot of the buzzwords, difficulties, tools, and advice on managing yourself or others through trying times. This is Progcast BC. All right. Thanks, uh, Andrew. I have Andrew Newfield with me today from Alongside You. Uh, He's joining me here today to talk about mental health, uh, specifically in tech and in product. So, Andrew, thanks very much for joining me today on uh, Progcast BC. Hey, thanks, Blake. Great to be here. So, Andrew, I want to crack into it by getting a little bit more knowledgeable about you and and what you're about, what you do. Um, Can you tell me about uh, who you are and uh, what you do? Sure. This is my favorite awkward question. You know, (laughs) people ask, what do you do? And it's hard enough for me to talk about who I am and what I do just because I get, you know, anxious about that, but also because, like, it's a bit of a hard question to answer. I, my best description is human Swiss army knife at this point, you know, I'm the, I'm the CEO of alongside you. So we're a integrated health clinic here in South Delta. We specialize in mental health and then also in chronic conditions and chronic pain. Um, and, uh, in my, on my other hat, I'm the principal at immerse consulting where we do corporate consulting around mental health, people management, business and executive coaching and, and all those sorts of things. Um, in my private life, I'm a, been a musician my whole life. I'm a car nut, do some woodworking, but the biggest thing for me is, uh, I've been married 18 years to my wife, who's also my business partner, which is a real interesting conversation in and of itself. And then I've got two awesome kids, Emily and Ava, they're 12 and 14. And so Emily's just started high school. <laughs> Ava is <laughs> looking at high school with some with some apprehension. And uh, but my my passion really is just integrating mental health, business, culture, art, families, relationships, and just helping people figure out who they are and how they function and how to do that at their best in, in whatever environment they're in. So this is why I love what you're doing and I love being here because this is a great topic. Well, this topic has been really pointing across all industries, but for those in, in product and tech, I suppose the thing that's impacted uh, everybody the most is screen time. Uh, you know, even those that were working remotely before the pandemic, uh, now we're all working remotely. We're all forced into this. Uh, how many meetings a day? How many times on uh, Zoom do I need to be there? Um, and as a result of that, there's been a lot of different impacts on mental health, on uh, behaviors that have changed. Um, again, not uncommon to tech, but we are shifting more and more into this form of isolation. I'm just curious, like over the past year, have you observed any changes or different scenarios for those that you've worked with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think, well, first of all, let's just say like eight hours of WebEx or Zoom, like that doesn't inspire anybody, you know, and uh, I was talking to Timothy Young from Product BC as well, uh, a while back and just kind of a cell call, you know, between things. And then he was just like, Oh, my gosh, I've got like eight hours of meetings back to back on like the 20 to 30 minute slices. And we were just talking about how like that is a huge area that's shifted, because you can't have like hallway conversations anymore. 
anymore, right? You know, I was talking to another friend of mine and he was saying the same thing. It's just like, you can't just sort of poke around the corner and have that five minute, hey, what about this? Now you have to book these slots to have those five minute conversations that now take half an hour. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of overwhelming. So on one hand, you know, nobody gets inspired by all these Zoom meetings, at least nobody I know. But on the other hand, like I love the technology that we have at our fingertips, right? And in fact, um, my dad is actually a computer scientist, is a profit UBC and then worked in private tech. And he was actually involved in much of the development of the technology that all these tools rely on for their video encoding, which I didn't even know until a little while ago. I can't even imagine what this pandemic would have been like, not even related to tech necessarily, but like personally for families and individuals, but also in our roles in tech, like how would we have done this without Zoom or with, you know, without WebEx or any of these other tools, man, that would have been tough, but there's a speed bump, right? You know, I don't know what your experience has been, Blake, but like I hear all the time and I certainly notice as well, like online relationships aren't the same as in-person relationships. So I'm also not here to say, oh, online relationships, they're not real. I hear that a lot around like online dating and all that. And no, like it is a real thing and it works. I've met a lot of people who've met online and it's worked out well, but our body also responds differently over tech versus in-person, right? Like it's coded into our DNA and into our neurons and our, and our, and our neural mappings. You know, we respond differently when we're in the same physical space as someone else, thanks to something called mirror neurons. Now, they also seem to, I was actually looking this up because I had a client that asked me one day when I was in session with them, like, hey, we we'd talked about mirror neurons and all this. And they're like, so how do mirror, mirror neurons work over video? And I was like, that's a really good question. <laughs> you know, uh, it, um, in just my experience, it seems like they do, but let me find out. So I did some research and turns out mirror neurons still do respond over video, but it is different, right? And and it's certainly my experience. I mean, I love video. I've been doing, um, you know, video work for like 15 years, but it is different than being in the same room. And the thing is, video is, is a great tool, but it's not a substitute, or it shouldn't be, I don't think. I think that this is what people are really struggling with, right? Like, it's this really cool tool. And we all love it. It's really helpful but we're craving connection in a way that we just can't do this way, right? It's it's built into our very cells. We haven't been able to connect in the way we're used to or, or even the way we're longing to, right? Over the past 18 months, I really sense this longing in people to connect. Even if they're sitting on Zoom all day, you know, they're connecting, but they, yeah, there's just something missing. So one of the questions we might wanna ask ourselves as we sit in our remote places inundated by video calls is what are we doing to inspire ourselves daily? Right. Like I've also seen one of the things happen where like there's a spike in social anxiety and a push to like becoming a hermit almost. And I noticed this in myself. Like I, I don't know how many of the listeners here are into personality theory and you, you, the various personality tests, but like I'm a pretty hardcore introvert. I love people. My job is literally talking to people all day long. So it's great. I love it. And then I'm exhausted at the end of the day. But what I've found over the last year and a half is that like that has been accentuated. It's like by the end of the day, like I don't want to talk to anybody, you know, and I want to go home. And like, if I'm lucky, I'll be in a good enough mood to like want to hang out with my kids and be in a good space. And I've had to be really intentional about that because I go home and it's not like private time. It's like I got my kids and my wife and my dog, and which is I'm I'm very happy about that. But it's more interaction. Uh, but I I'm hearing over and over people just kind of pulling away from connection, mainly due to energy. And then this thought, like, oh my gosh, I remember uh, after Tuesday after the announcement, 
came out, I heard a whole bunch of people going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I have to go be with people now. Like, what's this going to be like? And it's like this social anxiety. And now you see blog posts coming out and, and rightly so, although I think it's a bit of a marketing play, but so be it, you know, it's like tips on how to reintegrate with humanity, <laughs> you know, and, and it's an important thing. Um, and, and I think there's wisdom in talking about that because it's real. Like we've yeah. been sequestered for so long and now we're, you know, probably by September, October, we're going to be kind of back to quote unquote normal or some form of that. Like that's going to be a shift as well. Um, and, yeah. and we got to prepare for that. Yeah. The transition back to work. Like I think most of the anxiety, like initially it was fear. I don't want to get sick or I don't want to like cause any risk or anything like that. But now it does seem to be social anxiety is there. The fear is diminishing about the actual virus and it's raising above the social pressure. One thing just on, on something you noted that I experienced a couple of years ago as I joined a Toastmasters club for public speaking. Mm. And uh, one of the tips they give for anybody experiencing uh, anxiety in front of a crowd and being able to speak is the ability to sort of scan the crowd and look people gently in the eyes and create mm. like a form of uh, connection. And like, once I started practicing that and doing that, not intensely, but just sort of indirectly across a crowd, something happened that just relaxed my whole nervous system. It was just sort of a, a feeling totally. there. So to your point about, yes, video creates a little bit of a feedback, uh, whereas audio, again, you don't really know necessarily much more than the emotional nuance of a voice. There's something about the sensory experience that's lost with every translation of a medium that we're uh, picking up on. So that, uh, that sensory experience again of being in a meeting room and having everybody around you, it's going to be uh, overwhelming at first because we've been kind of uh, in a sterile environment for a while, I would say. Totally. So yeah, my next question is, um, you know, another thing you mentioned how uh, important sort of teleconferencing has been for us to like maintain through the pandemic. There's also been a rise in like virtual health apps, both mm -hmm. uh, in terms of being able to engage with a medical practitioner, as well as in mental health uh, technology, lots of mental health apps are coming out. Uh, what are your thoughts on this rise in uh, that? new form of technology yeah it's uh i mean virtual health is so cool i mean it's and especially like it's interesting where i live here in south delta and where our office is finding a family doctor is like impossibly difficult um, and we were actually uh, involved with the division of family practice with our clinic trying to recruit more doctors and we like they even asked if we'd open up a family medicine clinic um, we're like, absolutely, like it, it would work so well with what we already do. And it'd be a great way, like trying to recruit doctors for whatever, like South Delta is an amazing place to live. So I don't know why it's so hard. But like, that is a huge struggle. And so like virtual health has been a godsend for so many people out here, myself included. You know, I actually, I'm fortunate I have a family doctor, but with my schedule and his schedule, like trying to find two times where we're both available is really tough. And so I was actually one of the early adopters in mental health, uh, as far as virtual health goes over a decade ago. So I've been using virtual health and counseling for uh, probably 13 years, I think, somewhere around there. I started with Medio, uh, which, you know, they're still around. They've been bought out, I think, for four or so times since. I think I was their first counselor to be on their platform. And it was huge right? Because I have a couple areas that I specialize in that are not very common. And so especially up in northern BC, it opened up this whole avenue where people in northern BC could meet with me um, and get the specialties they need. And, and I've seen that aspect grow so much. I could never have predicted how much it's grown since. Like it's, you know, I had an idea, but it's just exploded, you know, and, and certainly TELUS is kind of trying to, you know, get a corner on the market with Babylon. And, and I mean, I use their app and it, it works great. 
And so, yeah, like it opens up these doors to specialists for remote areas or even just specialists in general. I mean, you can be more efficient with your time virtually in, in mm-hmm. some ways, right? You know, GPs have on average seven minutes per patient last time I checked, you know, which is, I mean, that's a thing in and of itself, but yeah. it cuts down on some of the time and makes it more accessible for people, right? And makes, you know, possible for them to see clients across the country or even around the world. I've had clients all over the world at, at various times. It makes getting prescription refills so much easier than having to take time off to go to the family doctor, right? And, and where I see this being really beneficial is like, so let, let, let's let be honest here. Most of us listening to this podcast, I'm imagining, are probably the privileged elite, right? Like most of us probably have in our contracts that we can take time off. We can go see our doctor or we have flexibility in our schedules where like if we're going to see a doctor, we can flex the hours we're working. There are so many people who don't have that what now gets labeled as frontline jobs, right? Through the pandemic, like grocery store people, you know, people working minimum wage, they don't have this luxury that most of us, I'm going to assume, have on this on this podcast. And so trying to even just get to a doctor is incredibly difficult. And we see that in our clinic too, right? Like we we try to make appointments for people and they're like, man, I want to come in, but like, I, I can't get off work in the times that you're available. It's really hard. And so virtual health makes that so much easier. You know, a prescription refill can take like seven minutes so they can do it on their break, sitting in a bathroom somewhere if they need to, or just walking around the building. And we use that same strategy here at our clinic. If people can't get in by leaving work, like they've got a lunch hour, we'll see them on their lunch hour, right? It makes that so much more accessible, but there's also a risk, right? We run the risk of losing the relational aspect of the work that's being done whether it's a family doctor, or a counselor, a psychiatrist, or otherwise, there, there's just some things you can't do virtually, you know, and some aspects of the relationship that just don't transfer or, or different forms of therapy. Um, I mean, but even that's changing. So I, I am trained in a, in a modality called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's, it's a tool to use with trauma that involves eye movements and stuff. And, and it's really hard to do over a video screen. Now, there have been developments where like there's now tools that you can use to do it, but it's it's really difficult. And trauma work, I find over video is is more difficult than some of the other types of work I do because it relies so much on the interpersonal human connection in the room. But overall, virtual health is a fantastic tool. Um, my worry, though, is that it may devalue the need to invest time in mental health and other health, right? So so I go see my counselor every month, like clockwork. I go see him at least, at least once a month. It's just part of my own strategy. And it takes anywhere from two to three hours out of my day, you know, because he's not here in South Delta. He's out in South Surrey. But while it's inconvenient, it's hugely important as a part of my own mental health support and important for me to invest that time to be thinking about what I want to address beforehand. And then on the drive back to the office or home to be kind of processing what went on in that session afterwards. If it's by telehealth, it's so easy to just hop on Zoom or Babylon Medio or otherwise, uh, two minutes before the session, do the session, then drop that. And as soon as you're off the call, somebody walks in your office and you're like, okay, now you're back to work. And you haven't been able to do any of that processing that I think is really important. And also same with family doctors, right? Like they're not just robots. 
that's what Google is for. And most people have discovered how effective it is to Google what ails you. You know, it'll probably give you an anxiety attack, even if you don't have a panic disorder. But I think it's important to find the balance between convenience and intentionality, right? I think that's a really important balance to hold. Yeah, that's really good advice. I, uh, I, when I jumped into telehealth and my own counseling and the like, um, I, I definitely had that problem where I fit it in a lunch hour and have a meeting right at one o'clock afterwards and not have that time to repair or go for a walk or shake it off or, you know, anything that kind of triggered me. So the next few meetings, I'm kind of sitting there silent and uncomfortable and not really going through that process. So yeah, definitely take the time and, uh, don't just make it another meeting in your day. Mm-hmm. So another theme that I've noticed, uh, on the topic of mental health. Uh, specifically in the product community, it comes up a lot is the concept of imposter syndrome. It's always popping up in work environments. When you hear a lot of the advice that comes out to new product managers, new people coming into tech, uh, there's a lot about like we hear about the Goliaths of the industry. This is how they perform lots of great advice. And a lot of people go, well, I don't see what my path is to getting there. I feel like a bit of an imposter doing this right now. You know, that term has a lot of nuance. And I'm kind of curious, like, what are your thoughts on it? And what advice do you have uh, for people who bring it up? Yeah, absolutely. I I hear this a lot as well, you know, in in product communities, but also, you know, in in all the other areas that I work in. And and I think certainly anxiety can be something that gets in the way. And I think anxiety is really what drives this imposter syndrome. But I think it's also important to know that's also normal and natural to have imposter syndrome, just like it's normal and natural to have anxiety. Everybody has anxiety. Right. And there's a difference between our everyday anxiety and like clinical anxiety and anxiety disorders. Right. But imposter syndromes everywhere. Heck, I've got imposter syndrome right now. Here I am. I, and, and in different circles, I've been referred to as a mental health expert. Right. I run two companies. I consult with a number of major organizations around mental health. And, you know, right now I'm sitting here talking to you on a product BC podcast, wondering why the heck anybody would want to hear what I have to say. right? I'm just a 40 year old guy who struggled with mental health for 34 years, right? My journey with mental health started when I was six years old. And I try to do my best to help people, but I certainly don't feel like an expert in anything most of the time. I think that again, finding the balance between confidence and humility is really important. in no matter what our role is. Um, I know that when I'm brought in to work with a company or to speak at an event, there's a part of me that has to prepare to enter this by psyching myself up. I was trained in classical piano. And so I used to do a lot of concerts and I still play live music fairly regularly and I still get anxious before. And so you kind of have to psych yourself up. And in these situations as well, in in work stuff, we kind of have to do the same thing. Have to psych yourself up and then walk in like you own the place because it's easy to be intimidated when you have imposter syndrome. And as much as we have to walk in like we own the place, we also have to walk gently and tread carefully and realize Like we're just a human craving connection like everybody else. We have to set our expectations reasonably. Whatever role we're in, we're not there to be the savior or to solve everyone's problems. We're there to connect and see how we can help in whatever role we happen to be in. And this is really important, I think, in the product community. So I'm not personally in the product community, but I I, I work within it to varying degrees. And a couple of my friends are, are in the product community. Like, if you're in product, you're in you're in the business of solving problems. If you have a product that doesn't solve a problem for somebody, like you're doing something wrong. <laughs> like wh- why does your product exist then? Mm-hmm. Right? And so, yeah, our job is to help. And, and so imposter syndrome has a hard time with that way of operating. It's disarming to our psyche. And so that's actually one of the antidotes. If we can strike this posture of walking gently, you know, being humble, you know, working on the connection, 
well, like we can do that no matter what our role is. Right. And, and you see, you know, in different roles, whether it's in product or otherwise, the people that really succeed, not just in their role, but in life and in their relationships are the people that do this. Yeah. It's, um, this is a topic that's been growing a lot and I think there's still a lot to learn. And then, like you say, I think the practice of humility is a really important element of this because this is an experience and uh, product management as it sits today seems to be feeling like a new evolving role. It isn't something that's well-established, uh, you know, for other industries like project management, a lot of the training that goes into it is like, well, we know how project management works for construction. So follow all of these rules, but when you apply it into solving people's problems in this, you know, strange design product software world, tech world. Um, there's still a lot to grow on, a lot of learn, a lot of empathy to build through these relationships. But what seems to be the biggest issue is like, I don't know how to translate success into solving problems. Like sure, you can have a company that explodes and goes IPO and you can have a product that's adopted by millions of people, but a lot of people don't experience that success as well. And so that ends up getting internalized, feels like mm -hmm. a failure, but you learn from these mistakes as well. And that learning from failure is something that is taught, is, is shared, but it's something that you really have to incorporate as part of yourself in order to make that work. Yeah, absolutely. So another theme that I, I've noticed comes up a lot is um, one of the, the myths that seems to be out there in, in technology in general is that those that work in tech are always on, they're always working. They work really long hours. They uh, are higher risk of burning out and elements like that. But uh, the always on connect connectivity puts more strain on everybody. It, it struggles to make people create healthy boundaries. You hear a lot of conversations about work-life balance. And if you have a family or kids at home or a relationship, mm. or you just need more time for yourself in general, it feels like this tug of war constantly that people are, are struggling with. So so what thoughts or advice do you have on this problem in tech and, and you know, any suggestions on how to better unplug or take a break in uh, needed intervals? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you mentioned this work-life balance and I, I have what feels like a small aneurysm every time I hear somebody use that phrase <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it, it, it gives the impression, I think, that like this is something we can achieve. You know, I, in the sense of like when I hear people talk about work-life balance, I, I feel like they often use the phrase in that we should somehow figure out how to find this perfect balance between the two. Like if you're on a teeter-totter, one side's work, one side's, you know, the rest of life. If we just do it right, they'll balance out and things will stay flat. I, I got to be honest with you. I haven't met a single person that has figured out how to do that yet, myself included, because I don't think it's possible. If you're in product, you, there's a good chance you've got some math background, I imagine. And so most of us you know, will probably know what a sine wave looks like. So in audio, it's hard to describe, but basically it's this repeating wave that goes up and down, up and down in sort of a semi-even pattern, right? And I think that is what work-life balance looks like. You know, a perfect sine wave or a sine wave form is what balance looks like, right? There are going to be times where, you know, the curve is going up and we got to push hard. Anybody who launches a product, like tell me about the six months before you launch. It's probably pandemonium and mayhem, mm -hmm. right? Everybody's just giving her. And that's okay. There are periods of time where we have to do that. As long as once we crest over the top of that wave, we know how to let up. And then as we're going over and we're on the downward, we pull back and we coast and we rest so that the next time the curve goes back up, we've got the energy and the resources we need to push again. Because mm -hmm. that, that's, that's life in my experience, right? And whatever role I've been in, 
is there's this push rest, push rest pattern that if we do that well, then we get this balance, right? I, I really don't think there's any such thing as this perfect 50-50 life balance because I've never seen it. And so the biggest thing that I think people can do to help themselves is watch that pattern for themselves and maybe even map it out. But the other side of that coin is be proactive. Often we'll think like, oh, when I feel better, I'll go do X, Y, and Z, right? You know, whether it's biking or music or, you know, what have you, these things that, that make us feel human and, and feed back into us. When I feel better, I'll do those things. That's not how this works. I know the thought pattern behind that because I've done that myself, right? But it's not how it works. We have to be proactive and do those things, even when we're not feeling great. Because if we do those things, that's what's going to bring us back to feeling better again, right? Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, as you mentioned, in, in tech and in, and in under industries as well, it's too easy to be on all the time. If you're in product and you're in tech, you've got like tech everything at your fingertips. And it's really easy to get sucked in. Yeah. <laughs> but if we're, if we're on all the time, it, it just leads to stress and burnout. So one of, the, one of the things I like to do when I learn about stuff is that I like to find people that are smarter than me and know more than I do and sit down and have them say, pose a question and say, hey, tell me about this. So I am not a product expert by any stretch of the imagination. My best friend is. So I sat down with him and I had a conversation with him. And so he's, he's a product lead at a major tech company here in Vancouver. And I asked him what he's noticed with product managers during COVID. And what he said is that often product managers are looked at to be the source of ideas, right? It's like, there's a problem. Okay, here's an idea. Now let's go chase that down, right? The problem is that when you're burnt and you're fatigued, you're not going to be a good source of ideas, right? I don't know anybody that is at their best in, in creating ideas when they're, when they're burnt out. That's usually one of the first things to go, right? Mm -hmm. So if this happens, though, it makes you feel like you're not doing a good job. If your job is to be the ideas person and you don't have any ideas because you're burnt out, like that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so he, he had this advice, and I think it's really good. You know, he, he had three things he said. He said, one person should not be the source of all ideas. And I think that's really important because often I think whether it's true or not, often people in product feel like that. You know, if they're the product manager, it's like, oh my gosh, I have to be the source of all these ideas. You know, that's my job, especially if like some product managers are involved in the day-to-day -day doing of the work, others aren't. Mm -hmm. Like others, others are just there, hands off, basically sitting in meetings all day, making sure that things happen. And I think it's harder in that second scenario where you're not hands-on anymore, because then literally your entire job is ideas and managing the people who are then acting on those ideas. And so continuing that, the other thing he said is one person should not be the gatekeeper, which is the whole idea of community. Like even if you're the only one in a particular role responsible for things, you need a community to engage with and bounce ideas off and seek feedback from. And, and so I think that's important. And lastly, he said product managers should help others understand what the customer's problems are, mm -hmm. right? And that's part of the gatekeeper, right? So people work hard when they know why, like, it, you know, and certainly in my industry and in mental health and others, like it's totally true. The why is the important driver yeah. of productivity. You know, why am I doing this? Big question for most people. And so in terms of not being the gatekeeper and the sole gatekeeper, one thing managers can do, especially when they're under stress, is to make sure everybody's working with them knows why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. 
you know, because that is inspiring. Yeah. At um, at my workplace, uh, we recently had a book club where we read uh, Bernays Brown's uh, Daring to Lead book. And uh, mm. one of the pieces of advice she gave in that, which has really resonated with me, is the idea of like, recognize your core values uh, in what you do every day. When I've brought this up to other product managers and talked through it, that's something that seems to get lost in the equation of like, you're asked to, like you say, produce ideas all the time and perform. And like, you know, you're constantly measured on your outcomes and your output, but like at a personal level, sometimes you lose sight of where you fit into that. If things are going off the rails or you're burned out or you're tired, or you don't have a community around you to help inspire you and things like that. So when you recenter yourself a little bit and go like, what am I here to do? Am I showing up as my best self? Even if I'm at a lower energy, a lower output, like uh, it's that recognition sometimes that can help recenter you a little bit. So that's been helpful advice. And I'd be curious you know, in tech, there's so much about like, okay, here's the vision of the company. Here's the objectives that you want to do every quarter. Here's the projects and things like that, that you need to like output and, uh, you know, get delivered faster and better and really connect with customers. But at the end of the day, do you recognize how you fit into that picture? Like, are you in there with some intentionality of like how you want to show up every day? That's something that I think is, is going to be a much more big growing aspect in terms of how product managers show up. So thanks for that. Advice. Yeah, Absolutely. Podcast BC is British Columbia's very own product podcast for those working in or aspiring to join the companies that build strong communities of product leaders, product managers, product marketers, designers, engineers, and for all those who want to build and grow product-driven organizations. If you're new to this podcast, please consider listening back to our past episodes and subscribe through your favorite podcast services like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or others. Up next... Andrew and I chat further about the difficulties of managing change, both as an individual and as a people leader, and how to help observe and kindly engage with those around you who seem to be struggling. My next question um, is around sort of uh, something that I've observed in terms of tech culture in general. It's that compared to some other industries, you mentioned like, you know, the the privileged few have that flex time throughout the day. But with that comes the other side of the sword, which is change and ambiguity. Things are changing constantly. There's always restructuring, reorder, you know, reapproaches. Pivots happen a long way. You may be dedicated to something for six months and then a decision comes down to shift directions because it's going to make more sense. So you have to completely reset your world and go into a different direction. So in product, uh, but in tech culture as well, there's often less structure. The processes aren't necessarily well-defined. There's more focus on innovation, new approaches, autonomy. These are things that on an individual level, you have to try and manage your way through and adapt and always uh, handle that. Do you have any perspective on the pros and cons of this way of working and the effects it may have on a person's mental health? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it can be a really powerful way of working. I mean, that's my way. Like, <laughs> I own the company. <laughs> I can pretty much work however I want. Of course, it's, it's not as freeing as it might sound. Um, but I think it can be really powerful as long as we know who each person is and what they need to be at their best. Some people really need structure. Other people just need a framework, but the freedom to play within that framework. And some really just need you to leave them the heck alone so they can do what they do best. Right? I remember I, Tim Cook from Apple was talking to somebody and, and he's like, well, I don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. 
I hire smart people so they can tell me what we need to be doing, you know, and, and, and so one thing I've really noticed is how important that aspect is in terms of knowing the person. So I use a tool called the Berkman that really just, I mean, it just lays that all out exactly like, Hey, who's this person? How do they work at their best? What do they need from others in the environment? But it's so crucial to know that because not everybody works the same way, right? We're all different human beings and what works for me isn't going to work for somebody else. I mean, when we first started our company, I was 34 and I was probably working 80 to 100 hour weeks, but I loved it. Right. And it was in a framework. I was at a point in my life where I could do that. My kids were really young. They were in bed by like six or seven. So they didn't know I was working. So I could go in early to work. I could work all day, come home, have dinner, hang out with my family and then go back to work again. Whereas now, six years later, like I have no interest in doing that, nor can I, yeah. you know, and, and my, my environment has to be different, but my personality is the same. And so I was actually looking at my Berkman last night, trying to remind myself what it is that I need to be effective, um, because it's easy to lose track of that. But there's an intersection um, between just general personality and ways of being what we need and mental health issues around some of this. So folks who might be on the ADHD spectrum, for instance, are some of the most creative people you will probably ever meet. It's like a superpower that they have. And it's actually in the research. On average, people with ADHD are really creative people, but they often struggle with focus and attention and keeping organized, particularly around things that they're not interested in. And so then it's really important for the, the people responsible for them in the work environment to make sure that they've got what they need in terms of structure, in terms of feedback. And in terms of like, one of the biggest things you can do for somebody with ADHD is make sure they're working on something they give a crap about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and that's true for all of us. Like ADHD, if you look at the symptom list for ADHD, they're all normal things. Mm -hmm. Everybody experiences them. It's just with ADHD, the, the, the experience of it is to the degree that it actually interrupts life and causes problems. Mm -hmm. But one of the, so all of us struggle with working on things that we're not particularly interested in. But with ADHD, it's like a mandate. Like you better be interested in what you're working in or this is not going to go well for you. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important thing for leadership to know if they've got somebody with ADHD is you need to make sure they're doing something they're actually interested in. And then they'll probably be some of your most productive people, mm -hmm. right? Because they can also tunnel vision. If they're interested in it, man, they can get in there, they're creative and they will just give her. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's really important to know. They need a structure that they can rely on though to guide their creativity without stifling it. And so they need a particular environment around them to be successful. Um, anxiety is another issue that I see a lot. And if somebody doesn't have the right support around them, it's easy to get anxious. And those with a clinical form of anxiety feel this even more, right? So everybody gets anxious. And so everybody has an idea of what anxiety is like. Those of us, and this includes myself, I've got a raging anxiety disorder. When you have anxiety at that level, like, Unless you've experienced it, you really don't know how invasive and how terrifying it can be, right? Yeah. Um, and so this is why it's so important to know the person and their specific needs on an individual basis so they can support them in ways that they need to function at their best. And, and this takes humility on the part of the person struggling with mental health. You have to be willing to let people into your world. And that's not always easy in a work environment, right? That that requires trust. Yeah. I remember I was in environments where I was like, not a chance in heck, I'm going to tell the person leading me about any of this. You know, I'm just going to have to figure out how to do it on my own, which is not a recipe for success. Yeah. So this is where, again, where the community and the relationship is so important. And it's even more so in terms of mental health, because the people under your care 
will not tell you that they're struggling if they don't know that you care. Yeah. And if they don't know that they can trust you, you know, there's so many people that with mental health that worry that they're going to get fired if they tell somebody that they're depressed or they're anxious um, or if their productivity goes down. Whereas it can be the opposite if you have that relationship and if that's there and if the trust is there, then you can actually deal with the mental health issue and you get better work out of your employee. So it's a win-win. Yeah, the uh, the aspect of building trust and providing psychological safety. Like I find these words are tossed around a lot, but they're not necessarily actioned on, or there's not a real sense of connection as to like what are the different modals of threat response that different people are dealing with. Like you mentioned, the difference between somebody on an anxiety spectrum who may be constantly perceiving threat that to their actual security, whether it's there or not, uh, they're there and they need help and they need that safety and that trust in order to overcome that. Whereas somebody on the ADHD spectrum is definitely going to be like, give me something to care about. Otherwise I'm kind of tuned out on this right now. Yeah. And it may look like burnout on the surface as well, where you just feel that they're not performing, but have you actually talked to them about like where they're at, what they need, what they're lacking. Uh, so that connection part again comes into a people management aspect, which uh, leads to my next question for anybody in a people manager or a leadership capacity that, you know, you're dealing with such a large amount of complexity, such a large amount of situations. It's so easy to kind of resolve into the tangible you know, what is the problem you're dealing with outside of yourself? Like, what is your project? What is your customer complaint? What is that sort of aspect of a problem that you sometimes lose sight of the individual and where they're having problems? Where are they feeling? Where are they targeting those issues? So it's a complex piece where I feel traditionally managing people has been mostly focused on stress or issues at mm -hmm. hand. But on the mental health spectrum, like as you're calling out, there's so much other diversity of things to be aware of. So do you have any advice to the people managers out there in terms of like how to combat their own biases uh, but also recognize that anybody that they are there to support, how to help them, how to like give them the tools, the advice, uh, just the general support and trust to overcome some of their, their problems. Yeah. Um, you know, my best advice is if you are in a leadership position and product, focus on the health of each individual under your care, right? Your role as a manager may be to manage a product, but the calling on your life, in my opinion, as a human being in a position of influence is to take care of the people in your care. This is a high calling. Um, and it doesn't get talked about very much in business, you know, which is part of what I'm trying to influence in my work. But if we, if we put out a great product, but everyone who's built that product is fried, we have failed. Like just as humanity, we have failed. And the decision is not a dichotomy. Like it's not good product versus taking care of people. This is not a dichotomy we need to worry about, which I sometimes hear. Well, how? like we can't do that because we've got to push the product. No, no, both can coexist. Because if we take care of the people in our care, everybody wins, right? People who are cared for function better. People who function better produce better work. Better work produces better products and better products help people. So if you're listening and you work with products, my encouragement is just remember this. You're not in the product business. You're in the helping business. Without a problem to solve, products are useless. And we all know those products, right? Mm -hmm. Go on the home shopping network at one in the morning and you'll see a whole slew of products where, you know, if you're a relatively sane human being, you'll probably be like, why on earth would somebody produce that? <laughs> what problem is that solving? Nobody needs useless products. If you take care of each other and focus on health, you'll produce good products and both you and your customer 
will win. And from a leadership perspective in a company, and actually from a financial perspective in a company, right? Because one of the objections I get when I go into companies and I talk about this stuff is like, they're like, well, how much is this going to cost? You know, like we we just don't have the budget for it. And my response is generally like, we don't need to worry about how much it's going to cost, and you need to have the budget for it. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at the research, and it's most of the research on this stuff comes out of the US, but there's starting to be some stuff coming out of Canada now. But what it shows is that for every dollar a company invests in mental health, you get a three to five dollar return on your bottom line. Like, (laughs) as a business owner, (laughs) if you told me that I could give you one dollar and you would give me three to five dollars back, I'd be like, where do I sign up and how fast can we do this? Yeah. And that is the reality in terms of mental health and and investment for companies, right? And, and, you know, and I mentioned that not because like I got hung up on numbers, but I'm also a realist. I own two companies. Like money does matter. Absolutely money matters because if money doesn't matter, nobody's got a job after a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. But we can't just focus on that because the reality is, is we focus on people and we keep people healthy, and we invest in them, and we create this community of trust, and this community of collaboration and care, the rest of it takes care of itself. Our profits will go up, and people will thrive. And then we'll get better products. Yeah, like you said, uh, if you think about burnout being like a percentage of somebody's energy is uh, less, uh, if you take care of people and you encourage them ways to take care of themselves, then you're actually increasing an individual's output. Uh, so it's very easy to tangibly look at like the reward, the return it's going to have for your company. So it's a, a great way of looking at it. One other follow-up question on the topic of like helping people, managing people, the higher calling, as you call it. Do you have any advice in terms of how to uh, observe or identify when somebody is struggling and what you should do uh, to help address it? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, mental health training programs are really great. They're really valuable to just kind of get a, get a baseline understanding of mental health. But, you know, we can't turn everybody here into mental health experts in 30 minutes or less, but we don't need to, right? Like this is actually really fairly simple. It, it relies on, having a relationship with somebody, right? And that's true anyways. Like if you don't have a relationship with somebody and you go sort of confront them, so to speak, like, hey, are you struggling with mental health? Well, first of all, you, you don't have the right to do that if, if you don't have a relationship with them. And this is especially for people who are in an authority position. Like if you're a boss and that is your first move and you don't have the relationship, like you're doing something wrong. And I see it all the time because the thing to know is like, it is a very vulnerable place to be an employee struggling with mental health and to talk to the people that are are in authority over you. And I've been there, right? Like, I, I'm not just spouting this because I've read it in research because, you know, I, I advise people on this. Like, I've been that employee. I've had periods in life where I could barely get out of bed. I've had periods of life where I couldn't make it to work because of my mental health. It is a really vulnerable place to be. And so the first thing is just make sure you create healthy, trusting relationships with the people you work with. And second to that is it's hard to notice certain symptoms sometimes because everybody responds differently. So if you think of depression, for example, the stereotypical change that happens for people is they start under functioning. This was not true for me. And it's not true for a lot of people. When I was clinically depressed, so I was clinically depressed, basically from like the age of 10 until my mid 20s somewhere, I over functioned. 
So I was the guy, I was the kid in high school getting straight A's, playing three different sports, being a musician, you name it, I was doing it because that was my management strategy. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I come from a German Mennonite stock and I love making fun of, you know, my, my people because, but, but what we do have is we have a, a work ethic. We know how to work hard and we kind of have this unspoken motto. If you work hard enough, poop doesn't happen. <laughs> and so my response when I was struggling, I was like, okay, I'm just going to work harder. Mm. It worked on one level, I suppose, but it didn't help my mental health. Yeah. But on the outside, nobody knew because they saw me like, here's this guy getting straight A's. Here's this guy playing three, three different sports, like achieving all of these things. And I guarantee you this is happening in product mm -hmm. right now. I guarantee it. So it's sometimes hard because we think, well, if somebody's depressed, they're going to underfunction and they're not going to be coming to work, which also may be true. So the best thing you can do is look for a change in patterns. And this, again, relies on a relationship. If we don't have a relationship with somebody, we're not going to know what their usual pattern is. So we have to really know the people around us and watch for changes, you know, and ask the question, okay, I see them doing this. That's not what I normally see. Like, I wonder what's going on. And the reason this is so important is because that's how you can start the conversation with the person. Right. You don't want to go, hey, are you depressed? <laughs> hey, are you anxious? Um, you want to sit down with them over coffee and say, hey, man, like, I, I you know, I, I used to see you doing this. And it feels like in the last, you know, six months, like I'm seeing you doing this. And I don't know what's going on, but it just seems different to me. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to check in with you. Like, are you all right? Is everything okay? Um, how, how's life? What's going on? Because then you also give them permission to just tell you whatever they want. They might tell you yeah, everything's fine, even if it's not. So it might take multiple conversations, right? But watching for patterns and maintaining relationships is the best thing anybody can do. And it, you don't need to be a mental health expert to do that. Well, um, Andrew, I want to thank you for your time today. I think we're uh, towards the end of our time uh, limit here. But um, I just wanted to ask if you had any parting thoughts to share with the listeners of the show before we close out. Yeah, honestly, I just want to thank you for having me. These conversations are really, really important. And I hope it's been helpful for everybody listening. You know, if we want to thrive, we have to take care of ourselves. It's not an option. And we have to take care of each other. And for those of you listening who are struggling with mental health, I really, really hope you hear that struggling with mental health isn't a weakness. It's human. We have to replenish ourselves or we will not thrive. We can't give someone what we don't have. And so if you're struggling with mental health, take it from me, someone who's been dealing with this for 34 years. And like, if it was a matter of figuring it out, I would have hoped that after like, you know, 34 years of struggle and over 10 years after high school and school in mental health, like I would have figured this out by now. I still struggle with mental health issues. It's not a weakness. It's part of being human. And so I would just encourage you if, if you're feeling lost or if you feel you're missing connection or you're struggling and people don't know, take a risk. You know, tell somebody that that you trust, hey, man, like, I'm, I'm just struggling right now. And I'm not sure what to do. And let them be there with you in that. Right. And, and if you're not struggling, but you're concerned about people, focus on the relationship. If we can do those things, we win. Yeah. You know, there's tons of resources, but it's got to start with a relationship. And so thanks for having me here. Um, I think our challenge now in our work is to go beyond lip service and conversation to implementing some of this stuff and making sure it's happening. And, and so uh, I hope this is the start of that. Absolutely. Well, awesome advice. And uh, thanks again, Andrew. Thanks, Blake. Great to be with you. This podcast was made in collaboration with the volunteer marketing team behind Product BC. A big thank you to Camille Paterno for helping with the audio production and to Estella Lee, 
Peter Wynn, Timothy Young, and others for supporting the planning of this podcast along the way. Please go to productbc.ca if you're interested in becoming a member and joining the community. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode and content on the topic of mental health and tech. A big thank you to Andrew for joining me and sharing such thoughtful advice. This episode left me with a lot of good insights and tools for when things feel heavy or stressful. I hope this inspires everyone to share some of their own dialogue among colleagues and close friends and family on the topic if they feel comfortable to do so. It is important to help normalize this topic and provide more awareness, compassion, and support for those suffering any sort of illness or difficulty in life. Subscribe if you'd like to stay updated on our future episodes that look to wrap up our season on topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We look to wrap up our season with two more episodes. We're looking for stories and advice for newcomers to the BC tech scene, for those coming from outside of Canada, as well as a community spotlight to hear more from members of the Product BC community on why DEI topics are important to them. Thanks again for joining in today. This is Broadcast BC.